0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know, someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up, reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school, like I am, drop me an email detoxpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and take care. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to one of my favorite human beings, Ori Givens IV. Ori is the director of communications for an LGBTQIA related nonprofit, and I originally befriended him back in the day uh, because of his continuing work as a producer and host of the radio show Queer State of Mind, which airs every Saturday on Radio Free Brooklyn from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern. Ori has had a long career in broadcast journalism, having served as a reporter for Spectrum News here in New York, as well as in his home state of Ohio. Uh, He has also written for the legendary publication, The Advocate. Ori and I discuss many different facets of his life journey, including our mutual, but not monolithic, experiences as queer black men. Uh, He discusses being impacted by addiction at a very young age and looking to break the cycles of generational trauma many of us find ourselves struggling to come out on the right side of. We also go in depth about the experience of living in New York City versus living in the Midwest, as Ori has ping-ponged between both environments over the course of his adult life. I am super grateful, super excited. Without further ado, here is Ori Givens.
1: I'm Ori Givens. I am longtime journalist, communicator. Right now, I do communications for an LGBTQ-focused nonprofit, and before that, I worked as a journalist and content manager and reporter everything from digital to television to radio print off and on for about 10 years i am brooklynite as of now but from the midwest originally. have escaped twice (laughs) technically three times this is the third move back to new york wow Uh, so we'll see if this one sticks i'm a black queer male you Uh, are i think that's kind of center to who i am and at this point very important to identify recently married we've only been married for like a couple months but we've been together for a very long time so it's yeah kind of weird. i have a dog you do I, uh, yeah his name's winston he's old and crotchety <laughs> it's funny because Sometimes I think he reflects the best and worst of our personalities because <laughs> he can be very loving and attentive and energetic. But then when he doesn't want to be bothered, he does not want to be bothered. And if you don't come correct, doesn't appreciate it.
0: I have witnessed this firsthand. Yeah. I was Winston's dog walker for a brief moment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he takes a, a moment to get warm to you, but then yes. he's a good puppy.
0: He's Indeed good he puppy. is. What was it like growing up? Actually, before I get to that question, I'm yeah. going to just ask kind of a curious question that came up in my head is, how does somebody become a reporter? What is that oh, track like?
1: It's a calling. It's is funny, it really? Yeah, because I'm watching this show called Manifest, and they talk about these things called The Callings. And it's a good show. I like it. Eddie and I have been binge watching it. Eddie, my husband. And it is a calling. So I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a journalist. I knew pretty specifically that I wanted to work in TV news. When I was a kid, maybe kindergarten or first grade, I can't remember exactly what. But Dana Tyler, who is now an anchor here in New York City. Right.
0: I was like, how do I know that name?
1: Used to be an anchor at 10TV News, which was our local station back in Columbus. And she's a lighter skinned Black woman, looked like somebody that reflected my community. And it was really powerful to see her. And she spoke... And it was just like, wow, I want to do that. And so I actually had my first TV news job before I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. I worked, interestingly enough, bringing it full circle for 10TV News. They had a show called Kids News Network. And Kids News Network was like a 30-minute Saturday morning children's program that was in a news format. So there were anchors and reporters, and we went out and covered kid-related stories. Like I did stories about theme parks and events for kids and different activities. So that was the first time I was a TV reporter. I did that for like three years. So I was oh, a TV wow. reporter and anchor before I, I finished high school. And so it was always kind of the path. And when I got to college, I was going to study journalism at Ohio University and just didn't feel right. I knew then that I had to be a certain type of person and fit in a certain type of way to make it, especially to make it from the ground up. Okay, And this was early 2000s. When I was in college, when I started college. So it was a completely different mindset, completely different landscape for LGBTQ people. There weren't very many, if any, LGBTQ anchors, reporters that were out. There might be one or two in the major markets, but for the most part, something that held you back. Right. And So I was more like, I don't want to be in a career path where I have to compromise that much of myself. That's this me being in my 20s and (laughs) idealistic and whatever. (laughs) So I I decided I didn't want to pursue journalism for a while. And then the calling came again. I'd been working in communications for an international company, a job I fell into accidentally. I started out on the phones, taking like technical support calls and then started training and got to travel and do all kinds of cool stuff, training for this company. And then eventually I became a copywriter. Okay. And from there started doing all kinds of writing and production. And so doing that work made me fall in love again with the art of writing, the art of producing. And it made me think about news again. And I was in a different place in my life. I was approaching 30 then, obviously, A little bit more confident, but definitely at that point, I was like, well, I got to figure out if it's the thing. Mm -hmm. And I'd finished undergrad because I took a long break. I didn't go all the way through and finished undergrad in 2011 and then went on to grad school. And that's what brought me to New York was wanting to be a journalist. And I was like, well, obviously, if I'm going to be a reporter, one, I need to like accelerate my learning. So that's why I wanted to come to grad school. And I'm like, I want to learn in a place that's going to give me the most exposure, the most depth. And so that's really New York, LA or somewhere abroad. Right. Because of the type of work that I wanted to do. So I came here and started to really pursue it. Now, when I was leaving Ohio state, I did some internships. I worked as a reporter, a correspondent for a local LGBTQ outlet and did some production stuff, did some radio stuff. So it
0: was getting my foot back in
1: the door, but it's really always been a part of my life.
0: Wow. So we are both queer Black men. Mm -hmm. I grew up in New York City. You grew up in Ohio. I am assuming that there is a distinct difference in the yeah in the timeline i'll tell you
1: from our perspective you lived the dream right did i growing up now i know in reality yeah. growing yeah. up a queer black man yeah. anywhere is not the dream right but right when you think about like i fought for 30 years to get here not 30 years that's dramatic that's so overdramatic but at least like 15 I knew from a pretty young age I wanted to come. Because to me, that was where all the cool queer kids were. (laughs) And I went to a performing arts high school. Don't get me wrong, I was not a performer. Uh, But I went to a performing arts high school because that's where all the queer kids went. I was one of the smart kids. And there were a lot of smart kids. So it was the first school I'd been to where being smart was competitive. And not only that, it was Black smart kids being competitive. So it was like, oh, bitch. Oh, okay. Got to <laughs> step up because yep. not only are y'all smart, but y'all dance and sing and stuff. And I'm, but we always thought New York. Oh, New York, Chicago. Eh, all right, L.A. Mm, all right. Miami. Oh, yeah, she cute. She cute. But who? Can, you can't live the Miami life, girl. It was New York. And growing up in Ohio, where one. You weren't in the majority because you were black, because we're talking 70 plus percent white. It's not like that anymore. Maybe it's in the 60s now. Okay. Uh, But the majority of Ohio is still white. It was more white then. And it was still kind of segregated. So I was one of those kids that, because of federally mandated busing, had to go to school across town. And I went to a school in a neighborhood called Clintonville that was mostly white and upper middle class. It's where a lot of professors and their families lived because it was close to the university. And so every day for, I don't know, 14 years, (laughs) I'd make this bus trip from my neighborhood in Linden, which it's the neighborhood that was always on the news for not good things. Okay, Another reason why I wanted to become a reporter because I knew that other stories existed in places like that. And they weren't being told by people like us. And so I kind of just lived that experience of being in these two worlds from a very young part of life. And throughout that all, coming to understand queerness, coming to understand drama as it happened to me. And and I think being a young Black queer person where you have so few people like you, it's a challenge. And I was fortunate because Columbus was better than a lot of places. Okay, As far as being queer, there was a kind of a queer identity and LGBTQ identity in Columbus. As long as I can remember, I remember seeing the pride parades back in the mid-90s. Now there were hecklers and there were protesters. Fast forward to now when there's a million people or so that come to downtown Columbus, Ohio, to celebrate LGBTQ pride. It's different. But you still grew up feeling shameful. You felt like the other. I remember growing up and having experiences... Very young, that let me know that I was different, whether that was different because I was black or different because I was queer or different because I was black and queer or because I was poor or because I was smart or what people considered smart. I did well on tests and got good grades. Yeah, I liked to study. I liked to learn things. I was not athletic. <laughs> at all i was so unathletic that somebody that i grew up with actually wrote about how unathletic i was in their book in a memoir wait wait, oh, wait wait it was a wait, whole wait. thing yeah i'm in somebody's memoir child when like recently oh no this was i don't remember when the book came out Oops. my next door neighbor wrote this book about him He was involved in athletics. I don't know if I want to tell too much information. Sure, He played football. He lived next door to me until about 16 when I moved away because of family stuff. And I guess the experience that he had is a whole tangent. Tangent away. My dad was a recovering alcoholic and addict. He was sober for a few decades before he passed away, but Back when we were kids, specifically when I was at the age of four or five, six, he was very much deep in addiction. And so he wasn't always the greatest person. Right, And even coming out of addiction and going into recovery, he still was going through it. Right. So my next door neighbor and I always had a a relationship that wasn't always like approved because our families didn't like each other. Our families had some beef from back in the day. And so we couldn't hang out. And then also my family also knew that I was a little bit different. I was a little Femi kid (laughs) as I'm a Femi adult. So they always kind of flagged and clocked me. So when I would hang around boys like that too much, they would always be like, what's going on? And anyway, Long story short, he wrote this book about how my dad and him had an interaction and my dad said basically he wouldn't ever amount to anything and, and paraphrasing. But as a young Black kid who doesn't have a lot of Black male figures in his life, you hear something like that from somebody that you looked up to as an elder Black male, say something like, you're not going to amount to anything that's rough yeah, I, I can't imagine how rough that is and in contrast to me my dad was always very very supportive and affirmative of me being successful he wasn't always affirmative of right. like, the queerness but that's sure. a whole different part right but always knew that i would be a success he always believed that i would do great things i think that was a part of his ego honestly because i'm named after him so right. he saw my next-door neighbor as kind of a deterrent he didn't trust him Hmm, interesting uh-huh Like a bad influence not really i mean we were kids right i think we were just naturally kids that like to get into good bad trouble it wasn't anything weird or abnormal it was just like my dad was always very critical of who i hung out with and so if he didn't like somebody if he didn't like their parents and he didn't want me to be around them and as he grew older As he got out of the periods of addiction and growth, my dad went on to become a counselor, get his master's degree, help hundreds of people, if not thousands, overcome addiction. He obviously formed a different opinion. But I think when you have a kid that you think is impressionable and you think is a little bit weak and you think is a little bit kind of not able to stand up and defend himself, I think you're overprotective. And my
0: dad was definitely a a helicopter parent. (laughs) I understand that. Yeah. So this is a two-part question, I guess. Yeah. Was there a point in time when you internally realized that you were queer? And then was there an actual, like, coming out moment for you?
1: I, I think you always know something. I guess I remember when I started to have feelings that were for men. And it was when people normally start having feelings in general. okay, Really strong feelings, I guess I should say. But I feel like I always, even when I was younger, kind of attracted to the male form and even just idolization of my father and really looking toward that ideal. I Also, like I said, I was not an athletic kid. I was not strong or anything like that. So I did kind of look at manly men is very like it was kind of idealistic okay as far as coming out that's ever happening process like I had to like come out to the mortgage lending person when she (laughs) gendered my husband and so because she didn't know I was just like I just got married and she's like oh congrats and it's like well what's your wife's name and I'm like
0: like no it's 2023
1: y'all it's yeah yeah. so I think that's always a a thing. And again, nobody was ever looking at me like, oh, he's the bastion of heteronormative
0: behavior
1: (laughs) at all. Like, even when I tried, which was not very hard, (laughs) I had various understandings and connections with it. But I think really late middle school, early high school, I had people in my life that were like, look, You don't even need to try to hide. <laughs> we see you.
0: But well, Ori? And it
1: good or bad, because sometimes it wasn't good.
0: I envy that. Because in yeah, a way. It's because rough. I did not have that. For me, there was... And I can't really look back on my behavior as a teenager and say one way or the other. But nobody that I went to high school with assumed that I was queer my mom tries to say that oh we always knew but no you didn't yeah so i almost envy people who are able to exist in that space without there being any question about it although obviously there's no way to act gay or act straight or act queer or whatever it is right but there's for some people for whom you make an assumption and that assumption turns out to be correct and there's a little bit of maybe not jealousy because i think people at least in my day people men boys who were a little bit more stereotypically effeminate caught a lot of shit um yeah. but i don't know it's interesting coming from the perspective of someone for whom heterosexuality was assumed for a long period of time and not to say i didn't have a big part in promoting that when i was younger yeah. but i think it might have been easier for me in some ways had i not had this presentation
1: i don't know because I've never been in a situation where somebody... I mean, obviously, people assume heterosexuality because right. that's default, right? right? But when people get to know me, I mean, hell, you see me walking down the street, you like... <laughs> <laughs> that girl, I don't... And <laughs> it's funny because I wonder a lot. Okay, here's why I wonder, because don't get me wrong. I, I know a lot of men who have sexual relationships with men who are married to women and living the straight heteronormative lifestyle. Right. Right. And I get the societal pressures. I get all those things. I get the desire and want to do that, right? To check those boxes, to say, I have met that expectation. I have fulfilled those societal familial obligations Obligations. carrying our family forward all those things which is something to contend with right as a queer man especially as a queer man who's a a legacy namesake i'm supposed to have the fifth but i also don't understand i don't know the pressure that is heteronormativity because i've never really tried to at least very hard exist with that box i mean i had girlfriends when i was in high school but even they were like pretty i mean i was not I was queer. I was not trying to be straight. I think maybe I was trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. But I think it was also more that there was just no boys to date. You weren't dating boys then. Boys didn't date boys. Right. You might have been fooling around or whatever. right? But you wasn't taking a boy to homecoming. You wasn't even going out. I remember the first time I went out on a date kind of with a boy. Mm -hmm. Actually, we were 16, 17. We both worked at a movie theater. So it was a place where we kind of felt safe. Sure. And there, actually, no, there was a couple times where I went on dates, but they were group dates, right? But it's the first time a solo date. And, well, first of all, the boy told me that we couldn't date. Because we were, I was black, so that's a whole thing. Oh, Lord, been there. But also just having to contend with what is even a relationship? What does that look like? Right. Because, again, you can't do the same things. You can't walk down the street holding hands. You can't go to the coffee shop. You could get beat up. Right, you
0: get your ass kicked. Right.
1: Literally, and it wasn't worth it. Right. So... It, it's really hard to think about trying to kind of exist as a queer youth, especially in the context of where the queer youth are now, which we're very thankful for. Mm. We struggled so y'all could sashay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk ways. about like and those we, before uh,
0: us yeah, died. Died Ooh, literally, literally. Literally died. So we can live yeah.
1: and learn. Yep. And so, weird place we're in.
0: It is. We talk a lot about trauma to the point where I think in certain circles, it's become a buzzword. It doesn't get taken as seriously as it should. I I think we as humans all deal with trauma on some level. Uh, Of course. I I think as black people, we have a certain amount of trauma baked into our everyday existence. Mm -hmm. And I think as queer people, we also, I mean, depending on how openly you live your queerness, but also maybe people who pass have an internal level of trauma that they deal with so i think you put blackness and queerness together and particularly in the time that we grew up in because we're somewhat close in age and it's like this cocktail of shit that we are still kind of trying to work our way through as adults turning into middle-aged people yeah and you obviously recognize that and how do you deal with it all (sighs) Do you deal with it all? (laughs) Or deal with it at all?
1: You carry it and you learn to manage it and you learn to cope with it. You seek help. I think getting into a good relationship with a mental health professional is good for everyone.
0: Was that something that was okayed for you when you were younger? Or was that something that you had to like talk yourself
1: into? It's funny because my dad was a whole mental health professional, but was still like, really, why are you getting therapy? So I remember the first time I tried to go get therapy, I was in college and they had the campus student health center. And I went to go sign in and I was filling out the information and a woman comes up to the front and she's like, Hey, are you Ori Givens' the son, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was a running joke that my dad had spies everywhere. And so I couldn't do anything within the state, probably the country region without him figuring it out and he did really somehow manage to have people everywhere i ever went including around the world so it was kind of awkward i traveled a lot and anytime i travel he'd be like okay so this is the person that if anything happens you need to contact and there was one for everywhere good Um, lord so no the first time i was going like That shocked me, just that feeling of vulnerability, like, oh, my dad's going to find out my problems. I don't think I went and saw somebody for several years after that. And I don't even think I was in Ohio. I was like, I got to get out. But I wonder what it would have been like if I had have had a mental health professional as a kid. Mm. I don't know that it would have been a positive experience. Okay. We did have some affirming mental health professionals, but they were white. So they didn't understand the nuances and the dynamics of being a black queer person and sometimes not even understanding the nuances of being a queer person person, because there weren't a lot of queer mental health professionals back then. So it didn't really feel like a safe space. It was like until I was in my 20s before I told my doctor, because you just don't feel like those spaces are affirming or see you. as anything other than a sexual deviant. And I think also in my 20s, I really wasn't trying to process anything. I was trying to hide. I was trying to suppress. I was definitely not trying to process.
0: Were you aware that there were things that needed to be processed? I mean, in a certain way,
1: because by then I had experienced a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. I understood some of the childhood traumas that I had experienced being a child of addiction and being a child that at some points lived in poverty. We were like middle-class poor, but we experienced not having heat, not having lights, things like that. And so it's hard to know. Right. It's hard to know.
0: And in addition to utilizing mental health professionals, which this show is all about, like taking ass to therapy, also knowing that you now work, In a space where you have to, a lot of times, ingest the trauma that other people are going through, Mm -hmm. Like, what else are you doing to keep your head above water? Connecting with people.
1: I think it's really important, whether it's virtually or in person, trying to really be intentional about having those conversations and reaching out for my benefit and for mutual benefit. I think it's spreading the good energy. I wish I could say I have a lot of good coping behaviors right now, but that's not where I am. I feel you. It's not where I am right now. What my mind tells me is that I really need to get into another place of owning the truth and owning the things that have happened and learning from them and not re-traumatizing myself with them not living in a place of regret or sadness. One thing definitely is identifying the emotions as they come and realizing like, oh yeah, I see where this is. I see what this is and not taking it too seriously. Okay. I think your mind naturally goes through and processes things and runs through. It's like you think about your computer. Sometimes things just come to the forefront and want to take over it and run. So I think your brain sometimes is like that. And that can be very unnerving, it can be very unsettling and even harmful if you let it get there. So I think I try to be mindful of that. I try to be mindful of when I'm not in a great place and take those extra steps i'm real good about a nice bath and some candles and hide away in the water i'm a pisces that don't swim so that's all i get (laughs) is the bath break that down
0: yeah well Um, there's a whole ass stereotype Ori, about black folks not knowing how to swim
1: well it's not a stereotype you know what that comes from it one it comes from the generational trauma of the water yes and the transport that our ancestors endured. Yes. And two, it comes from the fact that white people didn't let us in the pools till the 70s. So there were literally no places for Black people to learn how to swim. swim in most urban areas and suburban areas. If you were lucky enough to live near a body of water, then maybe. Right. But they banned Black folks from the bodies of water, too. Right. So it was almost like they didn't want you to swim. But that's yeah, end. It's a whole... So I, I have to find those ways. I can say, because it's, it's legal here in New York, I'm a fan of cannabis use in responsible ways. I don't think it is a way to fix everything. And sometimes, especially in these wild, wild west situations, you have to be careful, I think. yes,
0: I like but the term responsible cannabis Responsible, use. yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. But I also think that just... Really being in a space where you recognize the ebb and flow and don't be too hard on yourself. And I'm a person that's really, really hard on myself. I've always been that way. It's the manifestation of childhood trauma and being the eldest kid the pressure of having to succeed and being perfect when nobody's perfect, but you have to somehow be perfect, but they expect all black people to be perfect Mm because we're magical Negroes and always dealing with that and the kind of yin and yang of who you're expected to be versus who you actually are. But I, I think it's many things it's, being present in what you're doing, whether it's playing Scrabble or hanging out with your friends. I'm trying to be better, but not doing really great with doom scrolling. Oh, and I think I need to go through another period where I just take off. The problem is, I work in communications. So I literally have to be you on social media. You have to. Right. And so I need to figure out how to manage and mitigate that. And that's another thing, it's just boundary setting. Boundary setting.
0: When, when you with find that out, out Lori,
1: and with others, and huh?
0: when you figure that out, please call oh, I me don't know. yeah i know it's horrible
1: <laughs> please call me it's horrible i mean before i got on for this i was like just going through and there's been some pretty terrible news <laughs> that's pretty generic yeah, so, yeah i mean well, not need to specify there's been some terrible news recently right we
0: also live in america so it's like there's terrible news all the time
1: yeah well and that too the social media platforms really take a really hard Push on what you see, yeah, and the information you see. Like I'm scrolling, and I'm like, why am I seeing all of this crap from people I don't know and organizations I don't follow? Where is this coming from? And you're like, did Facebook's brain break or something? What happened? But it's like, no, you're being intentionally fed things to see what you react to, what you don't react to. Yes, yeah. it's, it's like a, a, a game, and you're one of the players. We're you all are living in played. like the Truman Show. Yes, yeah, we're all yeah. living in the Truman Show.
0: Exactly. So when we were talking about going to see a therapist, the idea that people would hear that you're queer and think that you're some sort of sexual deviant, Yeah, which is also something that I, when I was younger and not incredibly younger, maybe like 10 years ago, younger, yeah. I had, had an issue with myself. We all do. Yeah. yeah. Was there a point when you, and also because of our ages, and again, I think you're a little bit younger than me. I was kind of the tail end of before the retrovirals and all that stuff. So mm. if you got HIV, you were dead, mm. essentially. So there's a lot more of a hindrance to understanding and owning sexuality. Mm-hmm. Was there a point or was there a process when you realized that your sexuality and to be a sexual being was actually healthy as long as it's practiced consensually and responsibly? Mm.
1: I, I think I started to come into that in my mid twenties and started to feel more empowered when you're not in high school and college where you're kind of jockeying for whatever I don't even know, like clout or BS and playing the games. I think it's different and you can really understand yourself. But I think it's a lifelong process, right? Because you're not the same person. I'm not the same person at twenty five that I was at thirty-five that I am now at almost forty.
0: Um, It's okay. We I made it through. You gonna make it through too. Yeah,
1: you're gonna be all right. You're gonna be all right. It's it's wild. So your things change in how you see yourself and how you position yourself with your sexuality and what it means to you. There was a period, especially in my early twenties, when you're just out. You just like you it was the queerest folk era. So we're just living it and being it and being the most. And I go to Pride now and I see the kids doing the most and I'm just like, oh, you live, you live. But it, I think as you evolve and who you are as a human, because sexuality is just a component of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that is where LGBTQ people are at a disadvantage because whereas as straight people get to have sex and sexuality as one component of who they are, for us, it's almost been conflated to be our whole identity. It is your defining factor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not by our choice. Right. So I, it's harder. We look at what's happening now with this discussion of groomers and grooming, which is really just cute kids existing and LGBTQ adults recognizing that LGBTQ kids exist. Right. So in the context of things like Drag Queen Story Hour, now grooming exists and other spheres, and that could be a discussion. Right. But I think that the hypersexualization of cute people by straight people is a big factor in how we view ourselves and our proximity to sexuality. Because as the dominant culture, there's an impact. If it wasn't safer to come out as gay, if you fit certain modes of operation it's still hella not safe for trans people right to exist in these spaces and it's still not safe for people who don't fit a cisgender presentation and it's still hella not safe for black people that's right Um, it's not safe for you if you're a brown person or a person who's a religious minority or an immigrant it's so we try to be as empowered as we can within our sexual identity, recognizing that we also have to be safe, I guess. And so I think it's really your proximity to not only your relationship with your sexuality, but also just the climate that we're in. I think we're going to see more people that are closeted, especially more people who are trans it's a really hard time for people there's a lot more hate violence across the board and if you're not cis gender or you're not what people see as now kind of the mainstream gay and lesbian it's like people need to categorize you and if they can't Put you in a clean box, it's really confusing for them.
0: It really is, and I think that's a whole like other discussion about what queerness means, and then that comes into things like bi erasure and yeah. the understanding of the spectrum pansexuality. I had an argument with somebody the other day about bisexuality versus pansexuality, where mm-hmm. they were like it's the same thing, and I was like, no, it's not.
1: No. <laughs> Words are specific for a reason. For a reason. Like, if they were the same thing, then they would just be the same. They'd know that that word has evolved because there was a need to clarify and specify.
0: Right. I mean, it's as simple as two genders versus more than two genders. Mm -hmm. Just understanding of that. And this was another queer person that I was having this conversation with, which made it more frustrating.
1: Oh, there's a lot of Lentai gender bias, specifically anti-trans bias within the queer community, just like there's racism within the LGBTQ community. The possession of one marginalized identity doesn't make you immune from bias. In fact, it can even magnify your bias. Well, Um,
0: I think about my own experience as a queer person mm -hmm. and how the majority of the homophobia that I have experienced or that I have felt has come from other people of color.
1: Yeah. It's always different when you look at it or when you experience it without the lens of race, right? So when you're in community based on your race or ethnic background, then that's kind of like default, that's normative. So you process things through a different lens than when you're kind of out in the world experiencing this type of harm. It almost like feels worse because we're such a tribalized civilization. People like groups. It's just a thing. And so we have these racialized groups that have been opposed, that have been put upon us. And so we have community in those, whether it's just by nature of being in these groups. And then I think when you are kind of an outsider or a black sheep, because you hold another identity, Identity. it makes the experience different. Like, I remember when I was growing up, I didn't always feel like I fit in with Black people until I understood the depth and complexity of Black people beyond my own family and my own neighbor. I think another really valuable thing about living in New York, good or bad, is that there's a lot of different types of Black people here. Mm Mm-hmm. Child, when I was growing up, there was one type of Black people. There was two, maybe two. We had just got Africans in Ohio. Like, they had just come.
0: Oh, God. Like, back
1: in the 70s. And there wasn't a lot of Caribbean people. There's a couple Jamaica folks, maybe, but not a community, not a presence. You couldn't bounce around different Black communities that were not of the same Great Migration appellation mm-hmm. of mine, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that's um, the experience I had when I lived in Michigan. I'm coming very from family. Brooklyn, where my folks are from the Caribbean, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very heavily Caribbean-American, yeah. to then move into a neighborhood where everybody there that was Black was Black-American. Mm. It was like, okay, these people look like me, but there's culture shock.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It is very different. I mean, I you remember when I saw Black people speak a language other than English, and it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I was like probably like six or seven, I was very young, but it was just so wild. And then I started learning languages. One of the reasons I wanted to
0: learn languages. I've heard that you are a language Um, person.
1: Yeah, I love language. I love connecting with different cultures and connecting with different experiences. And there's just a different way you engage with people in a language. And I just think they're fascinating. They're the portal to understanding different communities. And then it just challenges my puzzle brain, Brain. analytical brain. But I remember moving to Brooklyn and being like, wow there are so many Black people and Black people in power, Black people with legacies and histories and things like that. And it was not that that didn't exist in Ohio, but it had been a lot of times suppressed or erased or glossed over. I mean, our neighborhoods by that time had been pretty decimated through freeway projects and disinvestments and the crack epidemics and Mm. which we all have our theories on how those things. So the community aspect of Black life wasn't the same in Ohio. I think it's much different now. There's become a resurgence of Black unity, I think, in a lot of the Midwest because of the social justice movements that Mm -hmm. have happened since 2012, 2013 and beyond. So it's changing. But for me, I never want to say that Black people have been more homophobic. I, I think that tends to get canonized. Right. People have created homophobia. The culture of white supremacy, or the culture of white supremacy, sure. the culture of heteronormativity has created homophobia. We have to give the credit where it's due. But I think you feel it more when it's people that look when like When it's
0: people. your own people. Yeah. When it's people yeah. that you have the expectation are going exactly. to accept you. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. So it stings
0: more. And then a lot of times it's from your actual family, your friends, the people you grew up with. So yeah.
1: And it presents challenges to your safety. Yep. Yeah. And to your sense of well being. Yep. Yeah. And if you don't feel safe at home or around the people that you call family, then what can you do?
0: Right. Where are you going to feel safe? Yeah. Yeah. So to more things I wanted to ask you before we wrapped yeah. up. One is I want you to talk a little bit about Queer State of Mind, which is how you and I met. Yeah. And I mean, that show's been on now for like seven, eight years.
1: Yeah. So we are entering our seventh year, seven years of shows, almost 300. It's crazy. You go- And it is a show by, for queer Black people, specifically queer Black men, but really... Everyone who wants to understand and connect with the Black queer experience, our unique take on it. I think that being Black and queer is not a monolith. If you did math, you have all the permutations of Black people and you have all the permutations of queerness. You do that, you factor that out. That's a lot of different types of
0: people. Going to get a big ass number.
1: Yeah, it's a huge number. So (laughs) I think that like we have a very unique perspective as queer Black men who have come to New York in that sense of trying to find your young queer self in the big city. And so we see things differently, but we also recognize that our voices are important. Black queer voices are important. They're not enough of us on television. And this is coming from a person who was on television. Television, right. A Black queer person. Right. But this is genuine. This is us. We call it a brunch show because we literally come and we just enjoy our time and space. (laughs) I don't even think the girls really care if other people listen, but we think people tune in. It's fine. But no, it's home. And it's poignant because it's such a reflection of really coming into being confident in who I am and creating this space for other people to really live and be confident in who they
0: are. And I, it's amazing that you provide that forum. Yeah, well, and-
1: it's beyond me now. It's its own entity. I could go run away to Mexico and First state of <laughs> mind would still be on the air every Saturday at noon <laughs> on Radio Free Brooklyn, thank the heavens. Yes. So I guess... I was inspired by uh, the late Barbara Walters. Make you rest in power. Create a show that centered our voices. And listen, we've been on for seven years. For seven so years. Crazy. Yeah. But now we just need the money to come in. Where the money mm. reside. Mm-hmm. So I feel that that's, that's the next step.
0: Y'all can turn but it yeah. into a podcast. Not to say that that'll get y'all money either, but... No,
1: she's out there. But what I really think is the next step for us to do some sort of live streaming yes. or YouTube. Like, we're beautiful, so we need to be on television. Not that I don't love radio <laughs> and audio. I do. It's been a part of my life for a long, long time. But I want to be on TV. So I think that would be the next iteration. And I think it would be a great morning show format. It'd
0: be awesome. Yes. I agree. Um,
1: but yeah, we're live most Saturdays at noon, Radio Free Brooklyn. Tune in, have a
0: cocktail. It's fun. Don't spill any cocktails into the mixing board at the radio we station. Have <laughs> we have to talk
1: about that. We have to talk about that. Because we don't have, have champagne anymore. In <laughs> champagne in the studio. No more. Because of that.
0: Oh, God. Mm, oh, mm. Lord. And the last question is, so you've gone back and forth between the Midwest and New York a few times. Yeah. What feels the most like home to you? Like, Would you say Ori is a Midwestern person or would you say Ori is a New Yorker? Or is it still somewhere in the middle?
1: I think to say either or without recognizing the other would be inauthentic. I'm not a person that grew up in this city and I think that is a different experience, especially given some of the things that have happened in this city. Mm. Uh, I wasn't here for 9-11. I was not here for the pandemic. I was in the Midwest. Right. And so it shapes your experience as a human different. I make no plans to move back to Ohio or the Midwest anytime soon unless something happens. I have a lot of love in my heart for it, but I think this is a place that reflects more of who I am as a person in its diversity and its richness and its history and also its reflection of the values. It's no secret that the legislature in Ohio is not very tolerant of LGBTQ people. Mm. And so it's not... A safe place. And although there's a lot of harm that happens here in New York City, there's hate violence that happens here. There's state violence that happens here. I feel like overall, the community is safer. I don't hesitate as much when I kiss my husband on the street. Not as much. I still hesitate. I still, I still look out of the corner of my eye. So I throw the a brick, threat
0: will always
1: be there. Threat will always be there, and that's the thing: people don't have to live with the threat that somebody's going to hit them with a brick for kissing their partner on the street.
0: Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And I, not to jump on a soapbox, I wish people, I wish straight white people, understood what it is like to have an identity that every single thing that you do, from the minute you wake up in the morning till the minute you go to bed at night is a reflection of your lived experience in that identity. And we have that twice. Yeah.
1: Well, they do because everybody has an identity and everybody has an identity shaped by who they are. And people who are white have an identity shaped by existing within the dominant culture of whiteness. Right, right. You're correct. That allows them a certain type of existence. Now, again... There's the cross-section of class. There's the cross-section of religion. Those two are part of identities. So it's not that white people don't have identity. It's that for so many years, their identity has been the dominant identity to the exclusion of other equally valid identities. Right. And it's really all fake anyway. We know whiteness isn't real. Sure, people have skin tones and hues, but the value we apply to them, the boundaries that are applied. In some countries, I'm considered one color. In other countries, I'm considered another color. We are both Black men, but we have differing skin tones. And the relationship and the reaction varies based on that proximity. Yeah. I understand and we live in a society where that proximity to whiteness has always been more revered. And those are things that we're working to break down too. So so much more it's just such a dynamic conversation about how these racial and identity constructs, how these socioeconomic and sociocultural dynamics and constructs really play into everything we do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You said that much more eloquently than I kind of soundbited it uh, or soundbid it. But yeah, I mean, obviously everybody has an identity, but I guess waking up knowing that your identity is seen as less than.
1: Yeah. Not everybody has a stigmatized identity. Right. Right. Exactly. That's the thing. Some people's identities are affirmed and normalized And even uplifted while other people's identities are stigmatized. And living as a person with multiple stigmatized identities, I think, to be very, very transparent, it's like, let's say you have a book bag, right? And you only have to carry one book in your book bag. It's going to be real lighter than if you have to carry four books in your book bag. Or if somebody carries your book bag for you, for you, yes, right. So I, I think of it like that. And sometimes you have two books, and sometimes you have four books, and sometimes you're carrying your book bag and somebody else, somebody book else's bag, book bag, right? And sometimes it's very much everything, everywhere, all at once. It takes extra care for us, just like if you have to be extra, work extra hard, go twice as work twice as right, hard, twice get twice as hard. As far. To be, yep, and yep. we have to work twice as hard at health. We have to work twice as hard at wellness. We have to work twice as hard at deconstructing and working out the effects of trauma on our lives. Trauma that we had nothing to do with, that we were born with. Trauma that was put upon us from our birth. And the trauma that we continue to to experience. We all just experienced this pandemic.
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, and some of us are still experiencing it. Yeah, I say that
1: it's funny because like, literally, I know four people that got COVID the last couple weeks. So no, it's still here. She's still here in these streets. But I think when I talk about we experienced a pandemic, we experienced this collective experience of kind of a traumatic phase of life. Yes. COVID nineteen still exists. We are still technically under They blocked travel from China a while back. So I think it's it's still here, but that collective experience of a twenty twenty March twenty twenty to what summer twenty twenty two essentially to essentially, yeah. yeah. That will be something it'll be one of the most prolific events of our lives. Mm-hmm. People think about the depression, right? The pandemic will be one of those types of events. Yeah. And there was so much loss. There was so much collective trauma all over the world, whether it's the emotional loss or the physical loss or all in the above, the financial loss. I remember during that time I was a reporter covering unemployment for a statewide news agency and the stories of people just not having money for like weeks on end, didn't know how they were going to feed their families didn't know if they were ever going to be able to work again because some industries were just shut down for months. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff we need to work through. They just need to make therapy free for everybody. Good Lord. Everybody just go get checked out. Just go talk to somebody. I don't know. I'm sure there are people that did not receive the same levels of trauma from the pandemic period, or obviously there are people that don't have adverse childhood experiences like some of us have. But I still think you gotta talk to people and you gotta you reflect on what's happened in your life and get out of your head sometimes. Cause your mind will play lots of tricks on you and tell you all kinds of things.
0: Yeah, and the thing is nobody gets through this life scot-free, right? Like, oh. I don't know, you could have the most privilege of anybody and you could have the strongest internal constitution of yeah. anybody in this world. But somebody's going to die around you. Mm. You're going to lose somebody that you care about. You're going to have experiences in which you are made to feel less than. Somebody's mm. going to leave you or break up with you. Or yeah. And the discussion around therapy is always like, what's this person going to tell me that X, Y, Z, whether it's Jesus or my mom or my partner. And the thing is, this is someone, A, who is trained to, uh, help people get through these things. And also it is an impartial third, well, not third party, I guess, second party, but it's an yeah. impartial party It's somebody who yeah. has no real skin in the game. Yeah. And I think
1: that's important.
0: Yeah. And regardless of how transparent <clears throat> your partner or your parent, or your sibling or your friend may be like, There are very few people that are keeping it like 100, 100, 100 with you. Mm -hmm. And to flip that on the other side, there are always going to be things that you would hesitate telling somebody that you really care about that might come easy to unburden to somebody who's essentially a stranger.
1: Yeah. Well, I think furthermore, sometimes those are the people that are causing you stress or harm in some cases. Right. And you need a third party to be able to decompress because those people may not be the people that you can come to. Hopefully they are. Also, you
0: know. there's I feel like there's a forest for the trees kind of situation when you have a conflict with somebody else. Sometimes a lot of times I think you're too deep in it to really see things from an objective standpoint. Yeah. And bringing that other person in can help you get a bigger view of something that you're really emotionally invested in with some of the emotion maybe taken back. Absolutely.
1: And I think for me it was good to realize the emotions, the things I was experiencing were normal, right? They were normal human things that people experience based on the factors of their life and the experiences that they have. I think so much of our lives we're taught that we're just supposed to endure and be resilient. I, I hate the idea of resilience Like, I don't want to get beat up and just stay and hang on. Let me not abuse things. This idea that you're just supposed to hang on in the space of adversity is harmful. And I think that the more we understand that we can deconstruct what's happened in our lives and try to gain healing and insight from it, and there are people to do that that aren't going to judge you or not every mental health professional is good, but you have to find the ones that work for you. Right. You're not going to go to a shitty barber. Don't go to
0: a shitty therapist. (laughs) I tell people therapy is like dating. You're not going to get into a long-term relationship, usually, with the first person you go on a date with. Right. You want to date a couple of people and get an idea of what's out there before you make a commitment. Mm -hmm.
1: Because it is something that if you do it right, you're going to need to be vulnerable with that person. And feel the need to not withhold things from them. Because otherwise, it's not going to work in the same way.
0: That is absolutely right. Thank you, Ori, for sharing elements of your story with me. I'm looking forward to the next time we do this. Uh, hopefully, this isn't the only time we do this. And uh, a sh- big question for the listeners or a shout out to the listeners or a suggestion to the listeners. If there is a past guest on this show that you would like to hear more from, please reach out to me and let me know. I uh, have done some follow-ups and some follow-up follow-ups in the past. Uh, happy to talk to any of our guests another time. So uh, hit me up via email or social media and uh, let me know if there's anybody else that you want me to bring back. Queer State of Mind can be heard on Radio Free Brooklyn every Saturday at 12 p.m. Eastern. That is internet radio, Radio RadioFreeBrooklyn.com or RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. You can listen to previous episodes wherever you enjoy podcasts and you can follow the Queer State team on Instagram at Q-S-O-M-N-Y-C. That is Q-S-O-M-N-Y-C. Thanks again, Ori. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on, Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon. Actually, patreon.com slash detoxicity pod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, patreon.com slash detoxicity pod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.